Chapter Twenty, Part Four of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I proceeded to the guard fire, which the three chiefs were still seated, engaged in conversation, and through Romeo inquired who the parties were whose voices we heard and their object. They informed me that the voices were those of some of their young men who were anxious to ascertain if their friends, the captives, were still alive, anxious that they should not only see that their friends were alive but well treated. I desired to induce them to come within our lines and visit the captive chiefs. This was communicated to them through the chiefs who called them in tones capable of being heard far beyond the point at which the young Indians were posted. But this did not satisfy their suspicious natures. They imagined some trap and declined to accept the invitation. Romeo, the only one who could converse freely in the Indian tongue, might have been able to persuade them to come in, but it was not safe for him to venture beyond the line of our pickets and trust himself in the power of the young Indians. In this emergency I thought of Manasita, in whom I had every confidence and who I believed might be successful in inducing her friends to come in. Sending for her, I soon acquainted her with my plan, to which she gave her ready assent, only expressing an apprehension that in passing our own chain of sentries in the darkness they might mistake her for an enemy and fire upon her this difficulty i removed by offering to escort her safely through the line of pickets and there await her return starting at once in the darkness she clinging to my hand with the natural timidity of a girl we proceeded to the picket station nearest to the point from which the sound of the voices had come, and after explaining to the sentry our purpose, passed beyond as far as it was prudent to do, and then, bidding Monacita to proceed on her mission, I halted to await her return. A few moments later I heard her voice in the darkness calling to her friends beyond. Back came the quick respond, and soon I could distinguish the tones of the assembled group as Monacita endeavored to convince them of their security and trusting to the promises made to them. Her arguments finally prevailed over their suspicions, and in the dim light of the stars I could see her returning, accompanied by four or five others. Not caring to tempt them by meeting them alone so far from support, I slowly retired until I was near the picket post. Here the Indians found me and after the form of an introduction by Monacita and a general handshaking, the entire party proceeded without hesitation to the guard fire, where they joined their less fortunate chiefs. It may strike the reader with some surprise that Monacita herself, a captive in our hands, should have voluntarily returned to us that night, after once being safely beyond our lines but she only confirmed the confidence that was placed in her. During her imprisonment, if her stay in our camp without a guard may be termed imprisonment, she had become a great favorite with the entire command. Not only this, but she believed she would in due time be given up to her own people, and that until then she would receive kind treatment at our hands and be exposed to less personal danger and suffering during hostilities 
than if with her village the visit of the young men to our camp that night could not but have had a beneficial influence upon the tribe as they were enabled to see that the three chiefs were being treated with the utmost consideration and were being held as informed at first simply as hostages to enforce compliance with demands which even in indian ideas of right and wrong must pronounce just after a lengthy conversation between the captives and their friends the latter took their departure charged with messages to their village both from the captive chiefs and me similar to those transmitted through the chief who had been released for that purpose the following day was passed without incident in awaiting the arrival of tidings from the village early in the afternoon the pickets reported a small body of indians in sight upon a nearer approach the party appeared to consist of about fifty mounted indians they rode steadily in the direction of the camp with no apparent wish to conceal their movements thus indicating that they were on an errand of peace when within a half a mile or less of camp the entire party dismounted and after picketing their ponies out to graze advanced on foot directly toward the camp so strange a proceeding at a time when the excitement regarding our relations with the indians ran high was sufficient to assemble nearly all the occupants of camp to watch the approach of this delegation of indians the latter were apparelled in their best and most highly colored clothes as they came near it was perceived that several paces in advance of the main group strode two chiefs evidently leaders of the party both advanced with uncovered heads suddenly i thought i detected a familiar face and form in the taller of the two chiefs in front and on more careful scrutiny i recognized my former friend and guest little robe who had thus quickly responded to my invitation to cast aside all doubts and come and visit me with a view to bringing about more friendly relations between his people and the whites as soon as i recognized him i advanced to meet him he grasped my hand and embraced me with what seemed to be real cordiality waiting until the other members of his party came up i shook hands with each individual and then invited them to my tent as the tent would not accommodate the entire party little robe designated about a dozen of the most important who entered while the others remained outside i soon found that in little robe i had a hearty coadjutor in the work before me he admitted that the white girls were held as captives in the cheyenne village which was the first positive evidence received of this fact he also stated what i had no reason to doubt that he had at various times attempted to purchase them with a view if successful of returning them to the nearest military post but his efforts in this direction had always failed he admitted the justice of my demands upon his people and assured me that to bring about a satisfactory condition of affairs he would use every exertion and employ all of the influence at his command it was to assure me of this desire on his part that he had hastened to visit me knowing that the surest and speediest way to establish a state of good feeling in an indian is to provide liberally for the wants of his stomach i ordered a beef to be killed and distributed among the followers of little robe with this also were distributed the usual supplies of coffee sugar flour etc 
so that their recipients were not only prepared to regard us as at least very kindly disposed, but I knew the effect on the village when the result of the visit and the treatment extended to our guests was described would materially aid us in our negotiations with the tribe. Little Robe, while earnest in his desire to see the white girls return to us, frankly admitted that his influence was not supreme, and there were those who would object to their release, at least without compensation, and it might be that a satisfactory settlement of the question might be delayed for many days. After partaking in a bountiful repast, Little Robe and his party set out for the village, promising to send me word the following day as to his success. Another day was passed in waiting, when the chief who had accompanied Little Robe the previous day again visited us, but brought no decisive or satisfactory reply. The substance of the reply was that the Cheyenne desired us to release the three chiefs, then held by us as hostages, after which they would be prepared to consider the question of the release of the two white girls. To this I sent back a reply that we would remain in the camp we then occupied until the following day, when, if a favorable answer should not be received, we would follow on their trail and encamp nearer to the village, the great distance then separating us about twelve miles being a hindrance in the way of transmitting messages promptly from one to the other. I knew that the village was in no condition for a rapid or extended flight, and could be overhauled by the cavalry whenever desired. At the same time, to allow as much freedom to their deliberations as possible, I had not been unwilling that a few miles should separate us. No reply was received. Consequently, we packed up and marched down the Sweetwater on their trail of the village about ten miles and went into camp. Here I received another visit from the chief who had previously acted as diplomatic courier between the camp and village, but the response of the Cheyennes was still unsatisfactory and exhibited a disinclination on their part to make any decided promises respecting the release of the captive white girls. They insisted as preliminary to such decision that the three chiefs held by us should be restored to liberty after which we might discuss the question relating to the release of the girls. I will not weary the reader by describing the various subterfuges resorted to by the Indians by which they strove to avoid or delay the surrender of the white girls without first, as has been customary, receiving a ransom. Finally, after I had almost exhausted the patience of the troops, particularly of the Kansas regiment, which had been raised and organized mainly to effect the recapture of the white girls, or else avenge the outrage of which they had been the victims, I determined to force matters to an issue without further quibbling on the part of the Indians. I sent for a delegation of chiefs from the Cheyenne village to receive my ultimatum. They came, and upon their arrival I assembled them in my tent, the three captive chiefs being also permitted to be present, as the conference, as will be seen, was to be of deep interest to them. After recounting to the chiefs the incidents of our pursuit of the village, their surprise at being overtaken, the stratagems by which they hoped to elude us, the steps which we had already taken to obtain the release of the white girls, and the delays imposed by the Indians, I stated that I had but one other message to be sent to the village, 
and upon the chiefs of the latter would rest the responsibility of the peace or war. Further delay would not be submitted to on our part. We knew they had two of our race captives in the village, and we were there to demand and enforce the demand for their release, cost what it might. I then informed them that if by sunset the following day the two white girls were not restored to our hands unharmed, the lives of the three chiefs would be forfeited, and the troops would resume active hostilities. At the same time, I called attention to the fact that in the famished condition of their ponies, they could not expect to escape the pursuit of the cavalry. Every argument which might have weighed in influencing a favorable decision was stated to them. The conference then broke up, and the three chiefs were remanded to the custody of the guard. The delegation from the village, after a brief interview with their captive comrades, took a hasty departure and set out upon their return to the village, deeply impressed, apparently, with the importance of promptness in communicating to the chiefs at the village the decision which had been arrived at regarding the captives. The terms given to the Indians soon became known to every individual in the command, and naturally excited the deepest interest. All hoped for a favorable issue, but no one regarded the events then transpiring with the intense interest and anxiety felt by young Brewster, who now saw that his long-cherished hope to recover his sister was either about to be realized or forever sealed in disappointment. The captive chiefs did not pretend to conceal their solicitude as to the part they were involuntarily made to play in the events then transpiring. I did not expect prompt action on the part of the chiefs in the village. I knew they would practice every delay conceivable before complying with our demands, but when the question was forced upon them as to whether they preferred to deliver up the white girls to us, or to force by their refusal the execution of the three chiefs, their decision would be in favor of their people. Three o'clock arrived, and no tidings from the village. By this time the officers and men of the command had assembled near headquarters and upon the small eminences nearby, eagerly watching the horizon in the direction of the village to catch the first glimpse of the messengers who must soon arrive to avert the execution of the three chiefs. Even the three chiefs became despondent as the sun slowly but surely approached the horizon with no tidings from the village reaching them. Finally, Romeo came to me and stated that one of the three chiefs desired to see me. I repaired to their place of confinement at once and was asked by the younger of the three if it was my firm purpose to make good my words in the event of the failure of their people to release the white girls. I replied in the affirmative. The chief then attempted a little Indian diplomacy by assuring me that in the village and among his own people he was a man of great consequence and could exert a wide influence. For this reason he requested me to release him and would hasten to the village, obtain the release of the two girls, and return in time to save his two companions. When this proposition was first made I attributed it to the fear that the chiefs in the village might decline to restore the two girls to liberty and the lives of the three chiefs would be sacrificed thereby. But subsequent events proved that while this consideration may have had its influence, 
which prompted the proposition was a desire to escape from our hands before the white girl should be restored to us as the chief referred to had been a party to their capture and to the subsequent ill treatment they had received i replied to his proposal that if he was such of an importance in his tribe as he claimed to be he was the most proper person for me to retain possession of as his people would be more likely to accede to my demands to save his life than that of a person of less consequence the sun was perhaps an hour high when the dim outlines of about twenty mounted figures were discerned against the horizon on a hill high two or three miles to the west of us instantly all eyes were directed to the party but the distance was too great to enable any of us to clearly define either the number of characters of the group the eyes of the three chiefs perceptibly brightened with hope securing my field-glass i carefully scanned the party on the hill every one about me waited in anxious suspense to the result of my examination gradually under the magnifying powers of the glass i was able to make out the figures in sight i could only determine at first that the group was as might be imagined composed of indians and began counting them audibly when i discovered two figures mounted on the same pony as soon as this was announced several of my companions at once exclaimed can they be the girls i could detect nothing however in their appearance warranting such a conclusion the dress apparently being the same as that of other individuals of the group while endeavoring to make out something more definite in regards to the party i saw the two figures descend from the pony and leaving the rest of the group advance towards us on foot all this i reported to the anxious bystanders who became now more than ever convinced that the two figures approaching must be the two girls i began describing the appearance of the two as well as i could with the aid of the glass one seems to have a short heavy figure the other is considerably taller and more slender young brewster who stood at my side immediately responded that last one must be my sister she is quite tall let me go and meet them this anxiety is more than i can endure but this i declined fearing that should one of the two now approaching us prove to be a sister seeing her in the forlorn condition in which she must be might provoke young brewster beyond control and induce him to attempt to obtain revenge in a manner not governed by either prudence or propriety so i reluctantly declined to permit him to advance beyond our lines but by this time the two figures had approached near enough to enable me clearly to determine that they were really of white complexion and undoubtedly the two girls whose release we were so impatiently waiting for as the kansas volunteers had left their homes in various occupations in civil life to accomplish among other results the release of the two girls who had been abducted from their frontier of their state i deemed it appropriate that that regiment should be the first to welcome the two released captives to friends and freedom accordingly the three senior officers of the regiment were designated to proceed beyond our lines and conduct the two girls to camp a duty whose performance carried its pleasure with it the three officers advanced to meet the two figures i used the term figures as the dress was that nondescript pattern which renders this term most appropriate 
They had passed one-fourth of the distance, perhaps, when young Brewster, whom I had detained at my side with difficulty, bounded away, and the next moment was running at full speed to greet his long-lost sister. Dashing past three officers, he clasped in his arms the taller of the two girls. This told us all we had hoped for. We awaited their approach, and as they drew nearer to the little brook which flowed just beyond the point occupied by the group of officers around me, I stepped forward, and extending my hands to the two girls, bade them a hearty welcome to liberty. In a moment, officers and men were struggling about them upon all sides, eager to take them by the hand and testify the great joy felt at their deliverance from a life of captivity. Men whom I had seen face death without quailing found their eyes filled with tears, unable to restrain the deep emotion produced by this joyful event. The appearance of the two girls was sufficient to excite our deepest sympathy. Miss White, the younger of the two, though not beautiful, possessed a most interesting face. Her companion would have been pronounced beautiful by the most critical judge, being of such a type as one might imagine Maud Mueller to be. Their joy at the deliverance, however, could not hide the evidences of privation and suffering to which they had been subjected by their cruel captors. They were clothed in dresses made from flour sacks, the brand of the mills being plainly seen on each dress, showing that the Indians who had held them in captivity had obtained their provisions from the government at some agency. The entire dress of the two girls was as nearly like the Indian mode as possible. Both wore leggings and moccasins. Both wore their hair in two long braids as if to propitiate us. The Indians, before releasing them, had added to the wardrobe of the two various rude ornaments such as are worn by squaws. About their wrists they wore coils of brass wire. On their fingers had been placed numerous rings, and about their necks strings of variously colored beads. Among the first remark I heard young Brewster make after the arrival of the two girls was, Sister, take those hateful things off. Fortunately, they were not the only white women in camp. I had a white woman as a cook, and to enable the two girls to improve their wardrobe a little before relating to us the history of their capture and captivity, they were conducted to the tent to the white woman referred to, from whose limited wardrobe they were able to obtain enough to replace the dresses made of flour sacks, and in a few minutes reappeared, presenting a much more civilized appearance than when they first entered camp. In a previous chapter I have given the main incidents of their capture. The story of their captivity was that of a hundred other women and girls whose husbands, fathers, or brothers take their lives in their hands and seek homes on the frontier. There was much in their story not appropriate for these pages. They described how great their joy was at encountering each other from the first time as prisoners in the hands of the Indians. They had been traded repeatedly from the hands of one chief to those of another, the last transfer having been effected only two weeks prior to their release. Soon after their first meeting it was their good fortune, comparatively, to become the property of one chief. This threw them into each other's society, and tended to lighten the horrors of their captivity. While thrown together in this manner, they planned an escape. 
Their plan, it seems, was more the result of desperation than of careful deliberation, as they had no idea as to what state or territory the village was then in, nor in what direction to travel should they escape from the village. Indeed, one of their first questions on entering our line was to ask in what part of the country we were in. Determining all hazards, however, to flee from their captives as the first opportunity and thrust a chance to lead them to the settlements or to some military post, they escaped from the village one night and traveled for several hours in a northerly direction. During this attempt to regain their liberty, they reached a wagon road over which wagons and horses had passed recently and were congratulating themselves upon the success of their effort when a bullet whistled past them and in close proximity to them. Casting an anxious look, they saw, to their horror and disappointment, their late captor or owner riding at full speed in pursuit. Escape was impossible. Nothing remained but to await the arrival of the chief, who came up excited and in savage rage at the idea of their attempt to escape him. Marching back on foot to the village, they became the recipients of renewed insults and taunts. Nor did it end there. The squaws of the village, always jealous of white women when captives, took this opportunity to treat them with the greatest severity for their attempt to regain their liberty. The old chief also decided upon a change of program. He had invested several ponies when he had become the possessor of the two girls, and he did not propose to risk the loss of this property. So he determined to separate the two girls by selling one of them, and the two friends in misfortune were torn from each other. Miss White, in consideration of the three ponies given in exchange, passed into the hands of another chief, whose lodge was generally located some miles from that of her late master. The story of the two girls, containing accounts of wrongs and ill-treatment sufficient to have ended their existence of less determined persons, is too long to be given here. Besides indignities and insults far more terrible than the death itself, the physical suffering to which the two girls were subjected was too great almost to be believed. They were required to transport huge burdens on their backs, large enough to have made a load for a beast of burden. They were limited to barely enough food to sustain life, sometimes a small morsel of mule meat, not more than an inch square was their allowance of food for twenty-four hours. The squaws beat upon them unmercifully with clubs whenever the men were not present. Upon one occasion, one of the girls was felled to the ground by a blow from a club in the hands of one of the squaws. Their joy, therefore, at regaining their freedom after the captivity of nearly a year can be better imagined than described, while that of the brother, who had struggled so long and determinately to regain his sister, could not be expressed in words. After the momentary excitement consequent upon the safe arrival of the girls in camp had subsided, officers, particularly of the Kansas volunteers, came to me with the remark that when we first overtook the Cheyenne village and I failed to order an attack, when all the chances were in our favor, they mentally condemned my decision as a mistake, but with the results accomplished afterwards they found ample reason to amend their first judgment. 
and frankly and cordially admit that the release of the two captives was far more gratifying than any victory over the indians could have been if purchased by the sacrifice of their lives with this happy termination of this much of our negotiations with the indians i determined to march in the morning for camp supply indian territory satisfied that with the three chiefs in our possession and the squaws and children captured at the washita still held as prisoners at fort hayes kansas we could compel the cheyennes to abandon the warpath and return to their reservation the three chiefs begged to be released upon the grounds that their people had delivered up the two girls but this i told them was but one of the two conditions imposed the other required the tribe to return to the reservation and until this was done they need not hope for freedom but in the meanwhile i assured them of kind treatment at our hands before dark a delegation of chiefs from the village visited the camp to likewise urge the release of the three chiefs my reply to them was the same as that i had given to the captives i assured them however that upon complying with their treaty obligations and returning to their reservation the three chiefs would be restored to their people and we would return to them also the women and children captured at the washita seeing that no modification of these terms could be obtained they finally promised to accede to them saying that their ponies as i knew to be the fact were in no condition to travel but as soon as practicable they would surely proceed with their entire village to camp supply and abandon the warpath forever a promise which as a tribe they have adhered to from that day to this with strict faith so far as my knowledge extends i had not heard from general sheridan since we separated at fort sill he too set out for camp supply and i with my command to begin my present movement but when near camp supply a courier met me with dispatches from general sheridan who had been meanwhile summoned to washington informing me in regard to the arrangements made for my command upon its arrival at camp supply the kansas volunteers were to march to fort hayes and there be mustered out of service the seventh cavalry was also to proceed to the same point and there await further orders as the general in his note stated that he had concluded to draw in the seventh and end the campaign in reply to my letters written subsequently from camp supply giving him a detailed account of our operations including the release of the two white girls i received a letter of warm encouragement from the general written from chicago where he had just established his present headquarters. In that letter he wrote, I am very much rejoiced at the success of your expedition and feel proud of our winter's operation and of the officers and men who have borne its privations and hardships so manfully. Give my kind regards to the officers and say how happy I should be to see them should any of them come this way on leave these words of hearty sympathy and approval from one who had not only shared but appreciated at their true worth our privations and hardships were far more cheering and valued than the empty honor contained in a half a dozen brevets bestowed grudgingly and recalled in a moment of pique making a brief halt at camp supply to rest our animals and replenish our stores 
my command continued its march to fort hayes crossing the arkansas river at fort dodge kansas upon our arrival at fort hayes we were met by the husband of the young brewster's sister who had learned of her restoration to liberty from the published dispatches which had preceded us to fort hayes he was still lame from the effects of the bullet wound received at the time the indians carried off his bride whom he had given up as dead or lost to him forever the joy of their meeting went far to smooth over their late sorrow they could not find languages to express their gratitude to the troops for their efforts in restoring them to each other as the indians had robbed them of everything at the time of the attack a collection was taken up among the troops for their benefit which resulted in the accumulation of several hundred dollars to be divided between the two captives the time came for our guests to leave us and rejoin their people or such of them as had survived the attack of the indians Goodbyes were spoken, and the two girls, so lately victims of the most heartless and cruel captivity, departed with husband, brother, and friends for their frontier homes, bearing with them the warm sympathies and cordial good wishes of every soldier in the command. Monacita was anxious to visit her friends who were now captives at Fort Hayes, and who were kept in a large stockade at the post, our camp being placed some two or three miles below the post. Accordingly, she repaired to the stockade and spent several hours relating, no doubt, the story of our march since they had separated from each other. She preferred to live in the cavalry camp when she was allowed to roam without the restraint of a guard, but it was deemed advisable soon after to place her with the other women and children inside the stockade, the three captive chiefs were also transferred to the same place for safekeeping. Here a most unfortunate misunderstanding arose. The chiefs had been confined inside the same enclosure with the women and children, but in separate tents. The commanding officer of the post decided to remove them to rooms in the guardhouse adjoining the stockade. This was decided upon as a measure of security. There was no interpreter kept at the post, consequently there was no way of communicating with the Indians except by rude signs, and even this method was but indifferently understood by the infantry soldiers constituting the garrison of the post. From accounts given to me by the Indians afterwards, it seems the man of the guard in the execution of the order to transfer the three chiefs entered the stockade muskets in hand, and upon the failure of the chiefs to comprehend what was required of them, the soldiers attempted to push the chiefs from the stockade by force, pointing with their bayonets to the outside. The chiefs, failing to understand a word spoken to them, and with the natural suspicion of their race, imagined that they were being led or driven forth to execution, and determined to die there and then. An attack was at once made upon the guard with knives which they had carried beneath their blankets. The sergeant of the guard received a stab in the back which almost proved mortal. This was a signal for a determined fight between the three chiefs and the guard, the latter having the decided advantage in numbers and weapons. The result could not be long doubtful. One of the chiefs, Big Head, the young man who had proposed to proceed to the village to obtain the release of the two white girls, fell dead at the first fire of the guard the oldest of the three dull knife received a bayonet wound through the body which proved fatal in a few days 
the third fat bear was felled by a blow from a butt of a musket but did not receive serious injury knowing that i could converse with the indians and from my acquaintance with them might be able to quiet the excitement among the remaining prisoners the commanding officer of the post sent for me for assistance upon repairing to the stockade i found the women and children in a state of great excitement and huddled together inside their tents entering the stockade i soon learned their version of the affair which did not vary materially from that just given monacita pointed to a bullet hole in her blanket the effect of a stray shot fired during the melee the affair was a source of deep regret to all the cheyennes in accordance with their promises made to me returned to their reservation and having thus far complied with the terms of the agreement then made it devolved upon the military authorities to return to them their people whom we had up to that time and since the battle of the washita retained as prisoners of war an order was accordingly issued releasing the only surviving chief fat bear and the women and children that were held at fort hayes wagons and subsistence were furnished them from fort hayes to camp supply and a squadron of the seventh cavalry escorted them to the latter point where they were received by their own people monacita although gladdened by the prospect of being restored to her people exhibited marked feelings of regret when the time for her departure arrived she had grown quite accustomed to the easy idle life she had led among the troops as compared with the mere existence of toil and drudgery to which all tribes of indians consign their squaws romeo who had accompanied us throughout the events described in these pages as the interpreter took unto himself a wife from the cheyenne village and thereafter became a sort of traitor between the whites and indians i believe he is still acting in that capacity lone wolf is still the leading chief of the kiowas but if public and private advices are to be relied upon he has acted with extremely bad faith toward the government and even as these lines are being penned is reported as absent from his reservation leading a war party of his people in committing depredations upon the people of the texas frontier satana since his release from the texas state prison has led a comparatively quiet and uneventful life how much of this is due to his incarceration in prison for a short term of years can only be inferred little raven continues to exercise the powers of head chief of the arapahoes although he is too old to infirm to exercise active command my former friend and companion yellow bear is the second chief in rank to little raven and probably will succeed to the dignities of the later heir many years have rolled around little robe of the cheyennes whose acts and words were always on the side of peace died some three years ago a few words in regard to one other character with whom the reader of these sketches has been made acquainted and i shall have disposed of the principal personages not included in the military whom the reader has encountered from time to time California Joe accompanied my command to Fort Hayes, Kansas, on the Kansas Pacific Railroad, when the troops were partially disbanded and sent to different stations. California Joe had never seen a railroad nor a locomotive, and here determined to improve his first opportunity in these respects and to take a trip in the cars to Leavenworth, distant about 400 miles. 
A few days afterward, an officer of my command happened to be called to Leavenworth, thought he recognized a familiar form and face in front of the leading hotel of the city. A closer scrutiny showed that the party recognized was none other than California Joe. But how changed! Under the manipulations of the barber and through the aid of the proprietor of a gentleman's furnishing store, the long curly locks and beard of California Joe, both of which had avoided contact with comb, brush, or razor for many years, had undergone a complete metamorphosis. His hair and beard were neatly trimmed and combed, while his figure, a very commanding one, had discarded the rough shirt of the frontiersman and had now a adorned by the latest efforts of fashion if the reader imagines however that these changes were in keeping with the taste of california joe by impression is wholly incorrect he had affected them simply for a sensation the following day he took the cars for the west satisfied with the faint glimpse of civilization he had had as i soon after left that portion of the plains in which these scenes are laid I saw no more of California Joe, but I often wondered what had become of my loquacious friend, whose droll sayings and quaint remarks had often served to relieve the tedium of the march and to enliven the group about the campfire. I had begun, after a few years as passed without trace or tidings from Joe, to fear that he had perhaps gone to the happy hunting ground to which he no doubt had sent more than one dusky enemy. When a few weeks ago I was most agreeably surprised to receive indubitable evidence that California Joe was still in the land of the living, but exactly where I could not determine, as his letter was simply dated, Sierra Nevada Mountains, California. Now, as this range of mountains extends through the entire length and embraces a considerable portion of the state of California, Joe's address could not be definitely determined. But as his letter is so characteristic of the man, I here introduce it as the valedictory of California Joe. Sierra Nevada Mountains, California, March 16, 1874. Dear General, After my respects to you and lady, I thought that I'd tell you that I am still on top of land, yet I have been in the Rocky Mountains the most of the time since I last seen you, but I got on the railroad and started west, and the first thing I knew I landed in San Francisco, so I could not go any further except going by water and salt water at that. So I turned back and headed for the mountains once more, resolved never to go railroading no more. I drifted up with the tide to Sacramento City, and I landed my boat, so I took up through town and they say there's 20,000 people living there, but it looked to me more like 100,000, counting Chinamen and all I can't describe my wolfish feeling, but I think that I looked just like I did when we was chasing buffalo on the Cimarron. So I struck up through town, and I come to a large, fine building crowded with people, so I bulged in to see what was going on, and when I got into the council house, I took a look around at the crowd, and I see the most of them had bald heads. So I thought to myself, I stuck it now that they are Indian peace commissioners. So I looked to see if I would knew any of them, but not one. So after a while, the smartest-looking one got up and said, Gentlemen, 
I introduce a bill to have speckle mountain trout and fish eggs imported to California to be put in the American Bear and Yuba rivers. Those rivers is so muddy that a tadpole could not live in them caused by mining. Did anybody ever hear of a speckled trout living in muddy water? And the next thing was the game law, and that was very near as bad as the fish, for there ain't no game in the country as big as mockingbird. And I heard some fellow behind me ask how long is the legislators been in session? Then I dropped on myself. It wasn't Indian commissioners after all. So I slid out and took across to Chinatown, and they smelt like a Kiowa camp in August with plenty buffalo meat around. It was getting late, so no place to go, not got a red cent. So I happened to think of an old friend back of town, and I'd known twenty-five years ago. So I lit out, and sure enough, he was there, just as I left him twenty-five years ago. Batchin'. So I got a few seeds I gonna plant in a few days, give my respects to the Seventh Cavalry, and accept the same Yosley. California Joe. The events described in this chapter terminated my service in the field on what is known as the Southern and Middle Plains, embracing all that portion of the plains south of the Platte River. From and after the Washita campaign, the frontiers of Kansas have enjoyed comparative peace and immunity from Indian depredations. No general Indian war has prevailed in that part of the country nor is it probable that anything more serious in this way than occasional acts of horse-stealing will occur hereafter. Many of my friends have expressed surprise that I have not included in Life on the Plains some of the hunting scenes and adventures which had formed a part of my experience, but I feared the introduction of this new feature, although probably the pleasantest and in many respects the most interesting of my recollections of border life, might prolong the series of articles far beyond the length originally assigned to them. I hope, however, at an early day to relate some of the experiences with the large game so abundant on the plains, and in this way fill up the blank in these articles which my friends, who are lovers of the sport, have not failed to observe. As I pen these lines, I am in the midst of scenes of bustle and busy preparation, attendant upon the organization and equipment of a large party for an important exploring expedition on which i shall start before these pages reach the publisher's hands during my absence i expect to visit a region of the country as yet unseen by human eyes except those of the indian a country described by the latter as abounding in game of all varieties rich in scientific interest and of surpassing beauty and natural scenery bidding adieu to civilization for the next few months i also now take leave of my readers who I trust in accompanying me through my retrospect, have been enabled to gain a true insight into a cavalryman's life on the plains. The End End of Chapter 20, Part 4 End of My Life on the Plains, or Personal Experiences with Indians by George A. Custer This has been a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. If you'd like more information or how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.